Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. Thank you all for being with us for our show today. Um, There's a lot happening on the immigration front uh, right now. We're going to get into that in some detail uh, at the top of the show today. A little later in the show, we'll talk about the latest uh, revelations about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who uh, ProPublica is reporting has failed to disclose a relationship He's had for many years with Harlan Crow, a conservative uh, multi-gazillionaire who um, has uh, been a good friend of Thomas's and given him uh, many gifts. Now we learn uh, that, in fact, uh, Harlan Crow bought a house, a couple of properties from Clarence Thomas that were never reported. We'll get into that. We're going to talk a bit about the Dominion Fox news trial, which is underway in Delaware right now, but we'll talk about it in the context of how it might impact, as evidence is revealed in that trial, Fonnie Willis's investigation uh, here in uh, Fulton County. And also, there's another defamation uh, trial that's going to get underway in a month in St. Louis. You'll remember uh, the Atlanta Fulton County election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, who were accused of helping Democrats steal the Fulton County elections. They testified in Congress. Their testimony was some of the most heartbreaking testimony that we saw as the January 6th committee did its work. Well, now they're suing a right-wing publication called Gateway Pundit, which uh, frequently went after them for being part of the scheme to steal the 2020 election from Donald Trump. So we've got a lot to talk about today, so let me get right to introducing our panel. It's Tuesday. My partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman. Hi, Tamar. How are you? Hey, Bill. I didn't know the category of multi-gazillionaire existed, but sounds nice to me. (laughs) I I, I say he is. I think he's a (laughs) multi-gazillionaire. We'll talk about Harlan Crow a little bit later in the show. And we're really happy to have with us one of the top immigration lawyers in the country, uh, Charles Cook. Chuck Cook has um, worked on uh, many immigration cases trying to help uh, migrants find their way through the system here in the United States, legally uh, uh, becoming admitted to to the United States. Um, he has also done a lot of work with corporations who are looking to hire immigrants, making helping them understand the laws that allow them to bring people into the country. But you know what, Chuck Cook, I really don't want to introduce you without talking for just a moment about the fact that in addition to your legal work, you have become a major farmer in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't call me a major farmer in Tennessee, but... I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, pre- you know, I practice law. I'm practicing farming as well. Um, <laughs> learning uh, to make things grow. Well, maybe major is the wrong word, but let's just say 
you are really taking it seriously up there. You're you're doing a lot of plant planting. Um, how many acres are you working with? We have 40 acres. Uh, you know, my dad told me when I was young, go big or go home. So you, you know, if you're going to plant one tomato, <laughs> you might as well plant 1,500, you know? So you might as well just go for it. <laughs> Chuck, let me start uh, with you because there is a bunch of immigration news that I think is worth talking about. And, and the most recent news really happened just yesterday in the U.S. House. Republicans, at its, and this is their second effort, to try to get an immigration bill passed in the House uh, before it, they can send it on to the Senate. They've um, introduced a bill that it would, in fact, uh, be a very restrictive and punitive measure dealing with migrants as they try to uh, cross the border and have a, get asylum here um, and uh, find refuge in the United States. Um, the bill includes uh, the fact that they would, um, uh, people seeking asylum, families would immediately be interred. Children, unaccompanied children traveling alone, alone would face the same uh, situation. Um, and there are many other aspects of the bill, uh, including measures that would restrict hiring of, uh, of migrants as well. Talk a little bit about what they're trying to do. Uh, well, what they're trying to do is get voters to support them in the next election, uh, because the reality is this yeah. bill will never become law. Uh, it, in fact, because the Republican Party itself is split on the issue of immigration, you still have a lot of Republicans in Congress who are pro-immigrant, uh, as opposed to the, the factions that are not, which I think is actually smaller than, than the other part. Um, the idea, some of the ideas are interesting. Okay, Clearly, there's an issue at the border. And that issue goes to the way our asylum laws work. Now, Congress created our asylum laws. They didn't, they weren't made by the president. When Congress created this law, they said, look, if you want asylum in the United States, if you fear for your life, just show up and you can apply. Well, the particularly interesting one here is that all asylum applications that for people that are applying at the border would have to be adjudicated at the border. Well, you know, that's it's a great idea. Okay, it's great. We're going to get them done right away. The problem is is ignorant of how the process actually works. Um, the reality is it takes months and months to prepare an asylum case. Um, and more importantly, perhaps, they are not allocating funds to actually hire officers to do this work. Uh, one of the crises that we're faced today, one of the reasons why we have this big backlog on asylum cases, is during the Trump administration, the Asylum Corps, and there is actually an Asylum Corps. These are asylum officers specially trained working within the U.S. Immigration Service, were reduced by 50 percent. They literally cut the funding to them. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to hire people back, but like every other employer in America, they're not hire they can't hire fast enough. There aren't the bodies to do it. So they're not allocating any money to actually carry out the plan that they have to have border uh, these applications done at the border. It's not going to happen. Uh, but the reality is the Biden administration is already trying to do that exact same thing with the with the other thing we're talking about, which is the end of Title 42 coming up, where they want to adjudicate these cases at the border. So it's not like this is a completely off the board issue. It's the Biden administration is trying to explore doing this as well. But it really comes down to bodies and money. Chuck, I, I want to bring tomorrow in, but just one quick explanation about this. Um, 
doing this at the border as opposed to what? Allowing them to enter the United States and travel to other jurisdictions? Well, we've had a long history of doing a lot of different things uh, for people that show up at the border. Uh, For many years, really starting under the Clinton administration, if somebody showed up at the border or an airport that sought asylum, we would detain them until they had what's called a credible fear interview. This is where you're interviewed by an asylum officer and they determine whether your fear, what you're saying is credible. And generally speaking, about 99% of people's fear was credible um, because you're, you're, you're obviously fleeing for your life, generally speaking. And so they were then authorized to be released. They weren't always released, but they were authorized to be released. Because of the flood of people that we've had, the sheer number of people at the border, we don't have detention beds for a million people. You know, I guess we do, but we, you know, we don't for immigration purposes. Uh, and so people were, are released. And this has actually been one of the great failures, I think, of the Biden administration of how they've actually run this process. Because what they've been doing for the last year, especially, is if you're up the border, because they don't have detention space and because the, you know border, border patrol offices with 30 or 40, 50 employees are seeing a thousand people a day. They can't create the paperwork fast enough to get them to the right place. So what they're doing is giving them pieces of paper saying, show up at the ICE office where you're intending to go within the next 60 days. Now, the the interesting thing is the vast majority of people are in fact showing up to the ICE offices. And if you walk downtown in Atlanta to 180 Spring Street, you'll see the line every morning outside that building of people reporting as they're requested to do. But what they're doing is taking a thousand people a day, allowing them to come into the country. Generally, most people have no people here. So they're going to go people they know, family, extended relatives or or friends from their villages back home um, and live with them temporarily until they can file for asylum. But this is also goes to the issue of the courts. The courts aren't prepared to handle a thousand new cases a day. Um, so it's, it's, that's what's happening now. It's kind of crazy, actually. So, so, so thank you for that explanation, because um, it, it, this notion that we're talking about retaining people at the border and, and essentially uh, uh, detaining them in, in unpleasant conditions uh, rather than allowing them to uh, uh, go on their own recognizance and report in is what the difference is, I think, right now. And we're going to talk more about that as it relates to Title 42 in a few minutes. But tomorrow. It strikes me that, you know, it, it, Chuck really led with what I think is an important point here. I said, what's this all about? And he said, this is about Republicans positioning themselves for 2024. And of course, it is highly political. This is nothing if not a messaging bill. Remember who controls the right, the White House. Joe Biden would never sign a bill that would do even a fraction of these things. We have Democrats controlling the Senate who would never allow a bill like this to make it through. And even within the Republican Party, uh, Speaker <clears throat> McCarthy in the House only has like a three-seat majority. So already you're having members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, folks like Mario Diaz-Balart from Florida who are raising questions about this bill. And so you lose three men, three three men or women, and then that proposal is kaput. So what is this about? It's about messaging. It's about press releases. It's about positioning yourself for 2024 and showing that they have a plan, even though everyone knows that this plan has zero chance of making it into law. And, you know, there's a million different things in this bill, I think, that, that people can point to on the campaign trail. But a lot of things in here that are unpopular, even with traditional Republican constituencies. There's a 
crackdown on immigrant workers, which, um, you know, the business community does not want. You you look at these big companies and tech firms who rely on high-skilled immigrant labor. You talk to farm groups who rely on low-skilled immigrant labor who want immigrant workers. So there's a lot of different proposals in here that would not fly. Um, it, 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 the other thing uh, that's part of this, Tamara, of course, is um, conservative media are uh, whipping up fear about the uh, uh, the thousands of migrants who are waiting at the border uh, to enter the United States when Title 42 ends. And let's I, I think what we should probably do first before we talk about how the media is whipping up fear is talk about Title 42 itself. So, Chuck, Title 42 uh, was put in place initially during the pandemic under the Trump administration, correct? It They, they used the pandemic, or, or did it exist before that in a different form? Well, the, my favorite thing about Title 42 is it has nothing to do with immigration. Uh, it has to do with public health. It's been around for a very long time. Many presidents have used the terms of Title 42, including most recently President Obama, during the, the the scare over Ebola coming to Atlanta. And so the president of, and the CDC, what happened, the way this works is CDC, the director of CDC, issues a notice. People from a certain place cannot come here for specific health-related reasons. And that was weaponized during the Trump administration to basically close all the borders to America. So that, that's what Title 42 is. So, so Title 42 is due to expire on May 1st. Um, and, and again, it was the Trump administration, as you say, weaponized it uh, because uh, they claimed that uh, they didn't want to see uh, 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 migrants with uh, coronavirus uh, pouring into our, our country at that time. Uh, it expires May 1st, Chuck, correct? It expires May 1st because that's timed, uh, that's timed with a new Biden administration proposal on how it's then going to treat individuals who seek asylum at the border. What Title 42 is doing now is stopping people from specific countries. When Trump did it, it was everybody. But the way that Biden has done it is people from specific countries from coming to the United States. Uh, they are immediately returned back home or back to Mexico if they're coming through the southern border, uh, whereas most other people are just allowed in. So if you're from Peru, you're allowed in. But if you're from Venezuela, you're turned around. And that will end, and this new creation of this new policy that the Biden administration has been going through the Administrative Procedures Act with will take place. The, the, the big issue, though, is how this is being sold to the people waiting in Mexico under the current idea that the, the Biden administration has with an app. And then we can talk about the app, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself, but there are people waiting to come in after May 1. Tamar, jump in. I mean, there certainly does seem to be a lot of confusion at the border, as Chuck mentioned, just reading about, you know, there's misinformation that's coming in from smugglers and cartels who are hoping to to get some money from all these really desperate folks hoping to come into America. Um, I'm sure the Americans who are trying to message kind of don't come in or if you're going to come in, do all these things, just getting people down at the border to get the right information. But even here as a journalist who knows something about immigration law and I'm trying to keep up with all of this stuff, even figuring out where the White House's position is is hard to do. It seems to change a lot. It seems like there are trial balloons that get floated. Chuck, the last time we were on the show together, maybe a month ago, I think there was a lot of confusion about what 
the Biden administration was going to do. I can't remember if it was over family detention or unaccompanied minor detention, but it's really hard to keep up and no one has a good answer. And frankly, it's hard to be the party in power at any point when it comes to something as muddy as immigration. No matter what you're going to do, you're going to piss people off and there's no good solution sometimes. Uh, so, which leads me to, again to go back to what I started to talk about, which is the way in which conservative media has been taking advantage of the end of uh, 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 Title 42 to whip up fear. Um, I, I set out to both of you a uh, New York Post story that claimed 40,000 migrants are waiting at the Mexican border to cross into the United States. It's like the uh, caravan stories that uh, pop up whenever it's an election season. Uh, there are thousands of people coming up from Central America to uh, cross into the border. Uh, so, Chuck, that's all. That all plays a role in this as well. It, it does, um, and I assume all the people came on a caravan <laughs> at some point to get to, to be the forty thousand. Uh, some very interesting things are happening both in the White House, as Tamar said. Part of the problem with the Biden administration is they don't really have a leader. They had initially some really excellent people on immigration topics in the White House, and they left. They left after a year. They've got they've got the second string in there now, and some of them are now leaving uh, because they're not getting the attention that they anticipated receiving from this administration, especially the Joe Biden, who on the campaign trail declared, I will end Title 42. I will stop detention. It's immoral. We're going to do and yet they're realizing there are no simple answers to this problem. One of the really fascinating things that's happening now is all, uh, this group of 40,000 you referred to are near, near El Paso. Now, El Paso is across the river from Ciudad Juarez, which was, at least at one point, the most dangerous city in the world. It's not that anymore. But so many people are, in, are, are in coming to the El Paso Bridge that what's happening is CBP, Customs and Border Protection, the Border Patrol, is when people come in, they just sit down. They don't run away. They're not running through the desert. They're literally just sitting down, waiting for the Border Patrol. Border Patrol is taking them to the airport and flying them to San Diego, to Nogales, to down to Matamoras, to other parts of, of, of the border to process them because they literally don't have the officers to get all that work done there. But, Bill, I've been reading an interesting book recently called The Last Million. You may be familiar with it. It's about the last million refugees after World War II and what the, what the Western world did with them. Uh, many of them were um, from Eastern Europe or fleeing the then creation of the Soviet Union, but a large chunk were Jewish, at least a quarter million to a half a million. And the Brits weren't allowing them to go to Israel. And the, there was a big fight in the United States about refugees. This is what led to the creation of our modern asylum system. Uh, so the discussion we're having now about 40,000 people at the border from, cent from Central and South America, this is the same discussion that we had 80 years ago after the end of World War II, but it was about Jewish refugees. It wasn't about people from Central America. Uh, as long as you bring that up, I know this is a little side note, but it's worth mentioning at least a little bit more about tomorrow. Uh, what Chuck talks about is refugees fleeing Nazi, who had fled Nazi Germany, who had survived the Holocaust, trying to come to the United States, and this country, which we would assume would be so welcoming, uh, posed as many obstacles for them as we're now seeing with migrants trying to cross the southern border. 
Yeah. I mean, I can't help but think of my own family story, which was exactly that fleeing uh, Poland and Ukraine after World War II. And um, I, I believe we were sponsored by some cousins and kind of distant cousins who were in New York who were able to get us here. Uh, how it was hard even then, but it seems like it's even harder now for folks. And then you add in elements like race and social media and politics, and it, it gets even choppier. I can't imagine so, Jamar, what that must me, have been like if Facebook had existed back then. That's all I can tell you. Yeah. Well, they needed you around to uh, represent them, Chuck. Um, CNN <laughs> published a piece uh, uh, recently um, under a headline that said, um, basically, it feels like Groundhog Day, federal officials frustrated by whiplash as Biden turns to Trump-era border policies. Uh, and this is something that uh, Chuck already talked about tomorrow, but just here's the lead. U.S. asylum officers are frustrated by policy whiplash under President Joe Biden, and some are considering leaving their post as the administration contemplates restarting controversial Trump-era border policies that would largely limit who could seek refuge in the United States. And one of the asylum officers was quoted as saying, I can't tell the difference between Biden immigration policy and Trump immigration policy. And this goes just to your point, Tamar, of this is such a muddied situation. How are any of us supposed to understand it? Yeah, and I mean, it has to do with the political situations in countries in Central America and kind of how desperate certain people are to get out of it, that they're willing to even send their children alone across the border through treacherous situations. Um, you have the politics here of what would you rather have, you know, a bunch of children lying on the floor in a detention facility? Would you rather have families do that? Would you rather send people to, you know, give people a ticket like you do now, come back to court in a month? There just are no good options anywhere. And it's, you know, we're talking about geopolitics here. It's not as simple as building a wall on the border or um, telling people to get tough. Um, it's way more complicated than that, as I'm, you know, Chuck knows very well. You know, Bill, the interesting Chuck. thing about these asylum officers, uh, you don't become an asylum officer because you are anti-immigrant. Generally, asylum officers mm -hmm. are liberal people, the kind of people that go into the Peace Corps, that's who becomes an asylum officer. And that's why a lot of them quit under the Trump administration. I think they all anticipated, especially the new hires, okay, things will be different now, we'll have more flexibility, we'll be able to take take the rational period of time and do these cases. And now they're being told, look, you've got 15 minutes to do a credible interview, I don't care how bad the situation is, I don't care what trauma the person suffered, you've got 15 minutes. It's It's a very difficult situation for these folks, which is, again, why it's failing because it's not set up for success at this point. Um, and the there biggest... are solutions. You know, Tamar talked about this. This is, being, this is a driving issue. This is not a, a, an issue where we, in the early, late 90s and early 2000s, where there's this massive demand for labor and people were just coming. And you know, they weren't coming to flee anything, they were just coming for jobs. These are people being pushed. And so the question is, what can we do to stop that push from happening? Uh, that's where this administration should be focusing their efforts. Which means on the countries that are causing them to flee because of policies that are uh, uh, unfriendly, unwelcoming to the people who are there, right? You know, one of the things that's fascinating, Bill, is you know we have a long history of being anti, you know, anti Castro, pro Cuban, the pro freedom Cubans. Well, I mean, we're seeing a lot of Cubans coming. If record numbers of Cubans, record numbers are leaving the island. 
So much so that the Cuban government just agreed to take repatriation flights. That's how bad it's been for Cuba itself. And so are we the pro-freedom country for our Cubans or are we going to send them back? This is this has really become a conundrum for people. Um, you know, I know this segment doesn't have any, you know, we love to propose answers to some of the issues that we're talking about or to hope that there are answers. I think both Tamar and Chuck have made it clear that this is one where the answers are still incredibly elusive. But I want to do this. I want to take a break. And before we move on to other subjects after the break, uh, Chuck Cook, you wrote to us and said, there are a couple of really good news stories about immigration. Let's spend at least a couple minutes after the break talking about those and then move on to uh, other issues on today's show. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, immigration attorney Chuck Cook, join us for today's Political Rewind. Tamar, good news about immigration. Uh, Thomas Friedman, I'm sorry, Paul Krugman, the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist who writes a column for the New York Times, uh, wrote this recently. Although many politicians will never admit it, the U.S. economy is currently performing far better than most analysts expected. We're adding jobs at a rapid clip. Inflation is high, but it's probably coming down. How are we pulling this off? He points out there are probably many reasons, but he writes this to Mar. A sudden salutary rebound in net immigration, which soared in 2022 to more than a million people, which is its highest level since 2017. It's been helpful. It's an exaggeration, but one with some truth to say that immigrants are saving the U.S. economy. Uh, Tamar, that's kind of remarkable given everything that we hear uh, now about how about the uh, negative side of immigration. Sure. And I mean, we talked about how, um, you know, there's everyone is looking for jobs. You can't hire people fast enough, um, especially in retail and hourly jobs. Um, those are, you know, many jobs that I think, you know, folks maybe want to look to immigrants for, or or that can be helpful for. So I think in an economy where unemployment is still pretty low, despite fears of, of a recession, um, I think that's helpful for employers to have more folks to look at. You know, who are these, immig- uh, these immigrants? Who are these immigrants? Um, you know, I, I take a little bit historical perspective from what Krugman said. In 2020, we had the lowest number of immigrants coming to America since 1789. That's how bad it got in 2020 uh, between the Trump policies and COVID. And that cr- created this met this four to five million missing employee gap. We're actually missing two million people because of that over the over the last six years. So we see this rebound. A lot of these folks are coming legally. A million a year came legally. That's see what Krugman is referring to as the million legal immigrants 
that immigrated to America in 2022. That doesn't include the other million, million and a half people that have come through the border that are seeking asylum. Every one of those people, when they apply for asylum, gets a work permit. Uh, they can do the, the jobs Americans don't want to do, which there are a lot of, by the way. Um, and it's it's amazing as I talk to people, because I meet with people every day that in this situation, um, both employers who say, I, what do I do? What can I do? And our immigration laws essentially don't let you do anything at this point. And so well, these people coming in, while not good for the optics of of what's happening at the border, are in reality providing the labor to keep our economy growing. Krugman's right on this. Uh, and this is why immigration is such a powerful factor in our economy, because it can make or break us. If we stop any immigration, and there's a lot of people that want to stop legal immigration, we will stop growing. Ask Italy, ask Japan how that works when you don't have legal immigration. Uh, it just reminds me, Bill, uh, your comment of that great line from Hamilton, immigrants getting the job done. That's what they do. <laughs> um, it, it, just to put it in the Georgia context, of course, Tamar, uh, there's no question that uh, farmers across rural Georgia um, are desperate to have the immigrant labor that for so many years they've used at harvest time and planting time. And, and they have had more issues with getting those people uh, uh, working than, than in the past. Yeah, I remember writing stories when I was in Washington in 2017, 2018 about Sonny Perdue when he was the Secretary of Agriculture, being kind of the lonely voice in the White House, pushing them to maybe allow some carve-outs for immigrant or for uh, for farms and agriculture because immigrant labor was so desperately needed. And a lot of these are positions that many Americans don't want to do, working out in the fields backbreaking work in the sun for hours and hours and hours a day, but that we need to keep the economy uh thriving. And there's a reason why you see many business groups um, on the sign of immigration reform when this issue comes up in Washington. You often see groups like the Chamber of Commerce um, kind of vocally support immigration reform. And it's because it is such a bedrock of our economy and we do need immigrants for many of these jobs. One last note before we move on, Chuck. I suppose another good story is that President Biden announced about a week ago that uh, DACA recipients are going to be eligible for uh, health care benefits. Um, that's a major step forward. Can he do that unilaterally, by the way? Is, are there, is, is he going to be open to uh, court challenges over that? That's a great or. Court, there's going to be a court <laughs> challenge. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Probably in Texas somewhere. Um, uh, but the reality is what, what President Biden is doing is updating a federal regulation. So he's going through the, he's following the law, doing the Administrative Procedures Act. It's not done by decree. But keep in mind, 99% of DACA recipients have jobs. So most of them already have insurance. It's not, and there's only at this point about 580,000 DACA folks left from a high of almost a million people. So most already have insurance. So this is making them eligible for the Obamacare enrollment uh, this next year. Uh, and at the end of the day, they're probably not going to be that many. They're going to do it because they already have they already have that employment that, that that insurance. But it's a great thing. It also will go to the issue of economics. You know, the reality is, why don't these kids have green cards at this point? They're not kids anymore, by the way. So most of them are in their 30s at this point. Let's fix this issue. This is this is one of those low-hanging fruit things. I think President Biden is trying to make it easier to just fix this. Well, of course, it's it, Chuck, Chuck, just uh, one final note on that. This is not free health care. They're being told they can apply oh. under the uh, rules of the Affordable Care Act for insurance. And by the way, 
one of the other benefits for everybody who's part of the uh, Obamacare is the larger the insurance pool, uh, the uh, better your rates are when it comes to dealing is. with uh, costs. It's a win-win. It's a win-win on all sides. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you for that. Let, let's move on to um, a couple of other subjects that are uh, in the news. Um, Tamar, since you have been just on top of every aspect of what's going on with Fannie Willis and the special grand jury here, I want to turn to you to start us off on really a couple conversations that I think relate to all of that. One of them is that with the um, Fox News Dominion trial now underway in Delaware, your colleague, Mark Nisi, wrote a piece last week saying that Fannie Willis and the Fulton County uh, uh, DA's office is going to be watching the trial closely to see what kind of evidence might emerge that would be helpful in terms of how they pursue their case here. Uh, talk to us a little about that. Sure. It's decision time for Fonnie Willis and her team. They've received their recommendations from the special grand jury that met for eight months, hearing all sorts of evidence on the case. And we're expecting uh, potentially in the next couple of weeks to hear from the DA about whether she plans to pursue charges against former President Trump and a ton of people from his inner circle. Um, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening in this Fox Dominion case. It's It was delayed a day yesterday, and there was questions about whether there was going to be some sort of negotiation or agreement struck to prevent this from going to trial. But obviously, if folks get put on the stand, um, there could be all sorts of, of evidence that could be helpful for, for the Fulton DA's team should she want to move ahead with a prosecution as well. And this will almost certainly keep Georgia in the news and a lot of false claims made about um, Georgia voting system, for example, which was uh, made by Dominion. And a lot of claims that were made by by folks like Rudy Giuliani and the president and many of his allies. So either way, Georgia will remain in the headlines for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark Report writes that both uh, what's going on in Fulton County and also what will be part of the Fox Dominion case are uh, the uh, actions of Sidney Powell, the Trump attorney who made some of the most outrageous claims about voter fraud in 2020, and her partner, Rudy Giuliani, another uh, guy with a lot of outrageous claims. And um, uh, and, and Dominion uh, voting machines were, uh, uh, in fact, part of a story that unfolded tomorrow down in Coffee County, Georgia, when Sidney Powell coordinated a team of computer experts to go into Coffee County with the assistance of the election supervisor down there and actually copy election software in uh, January of 2021. And uh, the special grand jury subpoenaed uh, uh, documents uh, from what happened down there. So um, while that Coffee County intrusion is not likely to be part of the trial, the fact is that this is another example of, of Dominion machines uh, being, I guess, sort of victimized uh, by these conspiracy theories that Fox News advanced. Yeah, for sure. And what happened in Coffee County became an interest in this Fulton County investigation. Of course, Coffee County is very far away from Fulton County, but what happened there could be potentially folded into a much broader RICO charge should the DA decide that she wants to go there because it paints to a broader, uh, perhaps coordinated attempt to undermine Georgia's elections, which is what legal experts tell me if they want to go that way. And of course, Sidney Powell, 
big figure of interest in this Fulton investigation, as was Rudy Giuliani. They tried and failed to get Sidney Powell to come testify before the special grand jury. Um, there were some intricacies because she lives in Texas. She was not forced to come because of a, a appeal. But Rudy Giuliani was named a target of the investigation. He came in um, to interview the special grand jury last summer. And um, there are a lot of smart folks I'm talking to who believe that that he could be indicted for his role in, in all of this in Georgia as a result of this Fulton case. Chuck, you're, you're, you don't specialize in First Amendment law. But of course, what's going to happen in this trial is Fox News is going to argue vociferously that the First Amendment gave them the right to talk about um, people who believed that the 2020 election had been rigged in favor of Joe Biden. And there are some who are concerned that the First Amendment could be in some jeopardy in this trial. I, I'm a, I believe the, strong, the First Amendment is strong enough to survive Donald Trump and, and the election lies. Um, Keep in mind, there is already a jury instruction already done for that trial that says this whole election thing is all false, and they knew it was false. So that I means that that is not even an issue in this trial. The question is whether they acted with with malice. Uh, and you know, there are I mean, anybody who's followed that case, you just, some of the email internal emails at Fox were incredible, and I think go a long way towards establishing malice in this case. Uh, I don't think this trial this trial is not going to last a hundred weeks. This is going to this can be pretty quick trial at this point. And then the question becomes, you know, what's the jury look like? You have a Delaware jury uh, in this case. I mean, I don't I don't know who lives in Delaware, but, you know, generally, I'm guessing it's pretty much not a red state. So we'll see what happens. But I, I think going back to what Tamar was talking about, Fonnie Willis, you hit on something really important. If Fonnie Willis has any any kind of trademark, it's RICO. Um, and uh, that RICO should scare the pants off of anybody that was interviewed in that case, because RICO carries with it some really harsh penalties. Uh, I, I'm, I'm staying tuned to find out what happens there in both those cases. Okay. All right. Um, thank you for that. I, I want to come back. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, a story that comes out of the fake election uh, uh, accusations, conspiracy theories from the 2020 election in just a minute. But we'll get to our second break uh, right after I, I just do a quick pitch. Uh, if you've been listening to uh, GPB radio this morning, you know that we've started our spring fund drive, which goes on for you know a week and a half. Um, and I, I just want to say to you how important this drive is to um, the programs that you tune into GPB Radio to listen to. And one of them, I hope, is Political Rewind. Um, every penny that um, you uh, uh, send to us goes to the programming on GPB radio. In other words, we're completely listener-supported. You've heard the news. There's been stories in the news about the state budget and the fact that um, the state, some of the Republicans in the, in the state were concerned about sending more public money to GPB. Uh, the fact of the matter is the funds that come from the state support our extraordinary education program, the curricula that we create for schools across the state. Everything we do here at GPB Radio is funded by listener support. Uh, Political Rewind has been an extraordinary uh, story for me over the last nine years. It started out as a one day a week show with a fairly small listening audience. 
Over nine years, as you know, we've grown to five days a week, and our audience has grown enormously. There are very few places I go where people don't come up to me and say, I listen to Political Rewind, keep doing it. If you're one of those, if you haven't been able to contribute to us, please take the time to do it during this fundraising drive. Uh, you can do it two ways. Go to gpb.org. You'll see a button that you can press to uh, contribute, or you can call 800-222-4788. 800-222-4788. We'll be back with more. Tamar Hellerman, even as the Dominion defamation case is underway in Delanor, there's a case about to get started in St. Louis that involves charges or a lawsuit brought by two Fulton County election workers who became very well known during the January 6th uh, hearings uh, on the Hill. Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shea Moss, two volunteer election workers at the Fulton County uh, site at uh, State Farm Arena. They were accused by the Giuliani forces, by Donald Trump himself, of uh, loading fake ballots into the system there. Of course, that was a lie. Um, But one of the uh, uh, so-called news organizations that went after them was uh, Gateway Pundit, which is based in St. Louis, which is why the trial will be held uh, uh, down there. And Gateway Pundit went after both Ruby and uh, Shay very specifically. What's up, Ruby? A site headline uh, read one day, Crooked Operative Film Pulling Out Suitcases of Ballots in Georgia is Identified. And, of course, they named both Freeman and Moss. Um, uh, Donald Trump called them out by name, Gateway Pundit, Uh, kept pushing on uh, the uh, Department of Justice to go after Shay and and her mom. We've got your vote fraud, A.G. Barr, one headline read. It's on video, and they attempted to steal Georgia with it. How about a few arrests? And it went on uh, from there. So there's another defamation suit in the works down in St. Louis tomorrow. Sure. And Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, of course, um, gave some of the most heart-wrenching testimony at the January 6th committee. They also quietly testified before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. And um, I think it's quite likely that the Special Grand Jury um, might have recommended charges related to some of the harassment that Ruby Freeman and her daughter received in the aftermath um, of the election. So expect that to be part of the mix as Fulton DA Willis decides what she wants to do. Gateway Pundit, right-wing blog that traffics in conspiracy theories. I hesitate to call them news because of a lot of the stuff that they put there, having to do with vaccines and the border and all sorts of really mucky things. Um, It'll really put to the test, though, um, a lot of media kind of libel and defamation standards that that were set in the the 60s. and I think there's a real question of, you know, whether, you know, Freeman and Moss will have to prove that there was actual 
malice, that there was reckless disregard for the truth for them to be able to recover any defamation damages. And that's a pretty high bar to clear, actually, um, based on a lot of the case law that's come since the 60s. Courts have interpreted um, who a public figure is really broadly. Um, So even if folks are are private figures, but maybe they responded publicly, um, they're considered kind of temporary public figures. And so it might be hard for them to to receive damages as a result. I'll be curious to hear what Chuck as a lawyer uh, has to say about that. I know it's not your area of the law, but it's something I'm really closely watching. Freeman and Moss also sued um, OAN, another right-wing network, which uh, settled with them and acknowledged on air that there wasn't election fraud and basically that they didn't do anything wrong. They also have a defamation suit that's ongoing against Rudy Giuliani. um, And that has moved on into, I believe, the discovery um, part. So that is moving forward as well. I hope they do a video deposition of Rudy Giuliani. I would just love to see that one day. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, Gabe White Pundit, uh, you know, on the issue of whether they're public figures or not, they, it, they, that determination is made when the when the false statements are made against them. They clearly weren't public figures at the time. And you can't say they're public figures now because you made them public figures by what you're saying. I, I think one thing that's absent in talking about this is race. Um, if these women had been white, they would never. They, I mean, that's honestly, let's be honest. They never would have made these statements. But they, they picked on them because they're black. I mean, it's just African Americans. And they, they made easy targets. Um, and good, good, uh, good wishes to them to get this done. I hope they've got a great lawyer handling it in Missouri. And even the language that that was used by Trump, but especially Giuliani, to describe what Freeman and Moss were doing at State Farm Arena is really um, shocking. I mean, this was this was spoken during uh, these Senate hearings in Georgia in December of 2020, the six-hour-long hearing where Giuliani was able to air a lot of conspiracy theories about the votes in Georgia. But he he zeroes in on Freeman and Moss as they're counting votes um, at State Farm Arena. He starts talking about suitcases full of ballots and a lot of that nonsense. But he also says, look at them scurrying around like rats. They look like they're passing out dope. Oh. Yeah, I, I that, that, that was Sorry, just w- one of the most troubling, troubling comments uh, of the whole thing. Chuck, I'm glad you uh, uh, brought that up. Um, all right, uh, one other subject that I think we ought to touch on. We haven't really done much with this on Political Rewind, but it's, it's worth a couple minutes here. Um, Tamar, uh, uh, ProPublica has really done an extraordinary job investigating uh Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, their first story, which was a blockbuster, uh, reported that for some 20 years, uh, Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny, have had a close friendship with Harlan Crow, the conservative uh, multimillionaire. I won't call him a gazillionaire again. Um, and that's included the fact that Harlan Crow has taken them on lavish vacations, ProPublica cites one particularly where they flew with him on a private jet. I can't remember the the vet where they went, but it was somewhere in Europe. They got on a super yacht, uh, and ProPublica estimated the cost of that trip would have been $500,000 if the Thomases had uh, paid for it. Uh, then they followed that up with a story that reported that uh, Harlan Crow had bought a couple of properties in Savannah that were owned by Thomas, paid over $100,000 for them. And after buying the properties, 
one of which was the home where Thomas's mother lived, um, fixed up that property specifically. She's still living there. Thomas never reported that on his financial disclosure reports. And that's been a big part of these stories as well, that Thomas never, ever reported any of this uh, that was happening with Harlan Crow over his years on the Supreme Court. Yeah, and Crow said he was buying this property in order to eventually build a monument to Justice Thomas to honor his position as the second black justice to the to the Supreme Court. But it does raise all sorts of questions, mainly about the accountability that these justices have. And really, there's very little. Um, unlike members of Congress, members of the presidential administrations that come in and out, they aren't held to the same standard in terms of reporting. It's a lot of self-regulation that these Supreme Court justices have. Um, it's kind of up to them to decide when they have ethical conflicts, when they should sit things out, when they should report things. Um, and it raises a lot of questions of whether Congress will choose to wade into <coughs> this, uh, which given how narrowly divided Washington is, I highly doubt it. But it does show just how lax the system is for these nine justices. Well, you know, um, I, I didn't Chuck, know they wanted the monument. I didn't know they want. He wanted to build a monument there tomorrow. Apparently, Hart and Crow loves monuments, um, but mostly to bad people. I'm just kind of curious that he would put one up for uh, Justice Thomas. You know, you're allowed to have friends. Just, I mean, justices are allowed to have friends. Um, but I've never had a friend offer to fly me to Europe and go on his yacht for for two weeks. Uh, there is a justice of the Supreme Court who resigned over something far less than this. Justice Abe Fortas resigned over a $20,000 loan that he gave back um, uh, over 70 years ago. It's just interesting. There's a very different standard here for this. Um, but I think this really speaks more loudly, not necessarily to Justice Thomas, but to uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, she said, Roberts, this is his court. This is not called the Thomas court. This is called the Roberts court. And this is yet another one of those things in the Roberts legacy that will, and that's all the chief justices have ultimately is their legacy, that will hang over his head like Damocles' sword. Because this just reeks. It just smells. And that's that's what people are going to remember about this court one day. Um, Chuck, I thought about that too. You know, it's interesting that and in this that Justice Roberts, um, who has for quite some time now apparently been trying to act in such a way that he keeps the court from being perceived as overly political, uh, finds himself in this situation smack in the middle of it. What can the chief justice do about this? Well, I, the chief justice himself is not in charge of the individual justices' lives, and he can't control them, really. But could he could issue policies. He could say, as a, as a justice of the court, our, our strong recommendation is you do the following things. Uh, he could urge Congress. Congress controls the court. Congress can say the court shall do this. Um, but he hasn't done that. And, you know, that speaks badly. Chuck Cook gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Chuck, thank you so much for uh, being with us on the show today. And Tamar Hellerman, always a pleasure. I look forward to Tuesdays when I have you on as my partner for Political Rewind. We're out of time for today's show. Again, we're in the middle of a pledge. We would love your support. If you're already giving it, thank you. If not, go to gpb.org and see if you can help GPB Radio continue to give you the kind of programs that matter to you. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody.